leitmotif Siegfried. In the total unconscious fantasy belonging to growth at puberty and in adolescence, there is the death of someone. When in Contemporary Concepts of Adolescent Development, D.W. Winnicott thus reformulates the murder in adolescence as unidentified dying object, he underscores that the task that comes upon the teen is to take responsibility for the death wish. And so he follows up with emphasis on personal triumph as something inherent in the process of maturation and in the acquisition of adult status which the teen approaches, however, with shyness. The combo of murder and triumph that Winnicott sees as basic to adolescence would suggest a psychopathic tendency equally basic were it not for the factor of immaturity. Immaturity is an essential element of health at adolescence. There is only one cure for immaturity, and that is the passage of time and the growth into maturity that time can bring. In 1964, Winnicott addressed what was in the news, young hooligans acting out in groups. There is real danger in the present situation, and the worst result of today's adolescent tendency to group violence would be the beginning of a movement comparable with the beginning phase of the Nazi regime when Hitler solved the adolescent problem overnight by offering youth the role of superego to the community. This was a false situation, as we can see when we look back, but it did temporarily solve a social problem which in some ways resembled the one in which we are involved now. The Third Reich jumped the gun and harnessed adolescence to the momentum basic to the new order, power through joy. The short-term solution to teen turbulence was to raise the cursory connections of teen group bonding to the level of society-wide membership. The teenage was thus lifted outside its dynamic with midlife criticism, lost is all the imaginative activity and striving of immaturity. According to Winnicott, the teen in the post-war world keeps it real by deferring identification with parental guidance. Only in time can he come around to making a compromise of and for himself. But the holding pattern of deferral must also be contained. Built-in societally controlled release of teen energy ended once the rationale that dedicated youth to preparedness for military conflict was gone with the atom bomb. Add to this effective contraception, and adolescence becomes the place in time where sex and violence are contained as its content. Adolescence now has to contain itself. That this suggests a dynamic of inoculation in lieu of treatment or interpretation would be the gist of my work on adolescence and psychopathy. The circumstances of the early loss of his father in World War I and the father's replacement with the devotee of German culture who was, moreover, his Oedipal, guided Ian Fleming to set the world of James Bond alongside the post-war integration of Germany. When Alexander and Margarete Mitscherlich wonder provocatively in the inability to mourn where all the energy went that was so generously expended and displayed in Hitler's name, I can supply the key. German adolescence was missing in action. 
the energy or industry associated with adolescence, as I argue in Germany as science fiction, was applied by Germans in their majority to the work of reparation that yielded the post-war economic miracle. That in the world of Bond, it is up to the midlifer's libido to occupy the foreground of reality testing fits a certain brand of athleticism in midlife, which began to be flexed in the 1950s. However, midlife working out need not cultivate and commemorate the original physicality of one's younger years. The building of the midlife body can also rise up over the incorporation of youth. Fleming's story, The Living Daylights, is set in post-war Berlin. A Soviet sniper must be stopped from shooting a man who aims to cross over to the West on the evening of one of the next three days. From their room near the border, at once lookout and shooting post, Bond watches the setting through the otherwise closed curtains while the officer in charge, an ambivalently cast father figure named Sender, narrates what to look for, what to recognize, what to remember. It reminded Bond of a spiritualist seance. While waiting for the evening hour of his assignment, Bond loses himself in the tribulations of the heroine of an SM porno he picked up just the other day in Berlin. James Bond's choice of reading matter, prompted by a spectacular jacket of a half-naked girl strapped to a bed, turned out to have been a happy one for the occasion. It was called Verderbt, Verdammt, Verraten. The prefix fair signified that the girl had not only been ruined, damned, and betrayed, but that she had suffered these misfortunes most thoroughly. Fleming constructs the SM porno novel out of a hybrid citation and interject. Its recognition value lies in its resemblance to the most famous German language product in this line, The Life of Josephine Mutzenbacher, Memoirs of a Viennese Whore, Noteworthy also because the presumed author, Felix Salten, wrote the novel that Disney's Bambi adapted. The span of this interjection is historically that of Fleming's generation. But Verdabt, Verdammt, Verraten, the book Bond picks up in Berlin, is the title not of a tribute to Mutzenbacher's passion, but of Georg Reimann's study of the perils of adolescence in post-war Germany the first volume of which appeared in 1955. Not only is the problem of adolescence thus subsumed by the SM fantasy projected into it, but the original dominatrix, whose scenarios inverted her male subjects, has been turned into a trainee tied to a fitness regimen. Another interject or intertext inviting more extensive reflection on the evacuation of German adolescence folds out of a blind spot in the career review of Walter Benjamin. What also comes out with the spot, the oblivion to which the psychoanalytic setting of Benjamin's thought tends to be consigned, is a case of what I have addressed as the resistance in theory. In 1929, Benjamin published a review of Alexander Mehta's psychiatric study from the year before, on the relations between language peculiarities and schizophrenia and poetic productions, and thus entered an exchange that brought his origin of the German morning play into contact with the clinical literature on psychosis. Two years later, Meta's review of Benjamin's origin book was published in Imago. 
Benjamin's review opened with a recommendation cited from Rudolf Borchardt. At the onset of the 20th century, it was high time that a nobler class of readership shake off the fad, even illness, of fascinated identification with Hölderlin. Borchardt makes the comparison with the Ossian craze at the close of the 18th century, with which we are still in contact through Goethe's Werther, but which was otherwise let go. This not entirely just judgment, says Benjamin, is countered by Meta's study, in particular in the parts endowed, as Benjamin puts it, with winning traits. Benjamin recognizes that Meta's skewering together of schizophrenic and poetic language invention belongs on the map of German adolescence, and even says it's kind of cute. Meta's intentions, however, lack the depth and breadth required for operating such dangerous linguistic hodgepodge. How can one not syndicate in one's own language proximity to the borderline of an untenable comparison if it applies ultimately to every endeavor to give form to thought? That Meta's combination of schizophrenic and lyrical texts amounts to playing with symptoms seems to Benjamin desperate. In Benjamin's more adult view, it is the primal time of language in which both the schizophrenic and the poet submerge themselves, but under very different conditions. The schizophrenic would introduce into a process of collective objectification in language an appointment or appeal, berufung, in a matter that was ultimately decided long time ago. The need to grasp essentials, to render immediately what was deeply felt, comes to a dead end, not because the schizophrenic lacks the spiritual resources of the poet or philosopher, as Meta avers, but, says Benjamin, because the collective trauma of language is predetermined and only a difference in the protective measures taken counts. The image of the diving bell Benjamin uses to distinguish the lyrical poet's sojourn in prehistory from psychotic abandonment to the same depths fits the image of encapsulation that Benjamin bestows in his 1928 article, Books by the Insane, for my collection, on Daniel Paul Schreber's share in a poet's preparedness. In Benjamin's media theorization, Schreber's diving bell for the wild plummet into prehistory kept him outside the close quarters of poetry and schizophrenia. In his media essays, Benjamin would raise a related question. How does gadget love and its idiom allow the adolescent or group member to stagger the psychoticizing impact of technologization and massification? A psychotic like Schreber who succeeds in surviving the end of the world in an escape capsule of his own projection catches up with the industry of adolescence that wasn't originally part of his Bildung. Upon his safe landing, with his rights fully restored, Schreber had the score of one of the Siegfried leitmotifs from Wagner's ring cycle etched over the entrance to his home. Adolescence, by daydreaming wish fulfillment alone, belongs to the future. Wasn't Schreber's transgender experimentation the adolescence appropriate rehearsal for encapsulation? A far, far better word than adaptation. Paranomasia, poetry, and schizophrenia tend to break out in adolescence. 
The teen talent for coining a new idiom is the free gift that comes with in-group membership. While the schizo goes it alone with his over-precision and fabrication, the teen exchanges his neologisms in group. There is a recurring typo in meta-study that places V like where via we is required and expected. It would syndicate schizo language if we were not group-bound in language to correct it right away. To let V stand irrevocably in place of via would be schizophrenic. By our initiation, via like or as if, this quintessential coordinates and particles of teen thought, we apply the group glue and enter the we. In his review of the Origin book, Meta's one gripe was with Benjamin's dismissal of Nietzsche's view of the Greek chorus. In Meta's theorization of the liminal state of adolescence via the Dionysian, in this contrast to Apollonian adulthood, the endurance of the Dionysian chorus on stage is pivotal to the dialectic of developmental stages. Without adolescence, no dialectic, no stage three accession to tragic heroism. Following his psychiatric study, Meta published essays and gave lectures in a cosmopolitan jargonic style within a frame of references to international psychoanalysts. In 1934, Meta published a monograph titled The Depth Psychological Foundations of the Tragic, the Apollonian, and the Dionysian on a topic that was already his standby. The 1928 clinical study was his thesis and station break. The 1934 depth psychological study, however, was banned in the Third Reich. In the midst of his consideration of the measure in the mix of the divine impulses, in exemplary German authors from classicism and romanticism, Meta directs the reader in note 35 to the cohabitation in the Baroque Trauerspiel in contradistinction to a classical synthesis of the psychoanalytically revalorized divine impulses. I therefore earlier, in a review article on the Benjaminian study, pointed to the connection between two neighboring realms the melancholic manic, and the schizophrenic. In the back of the book, among the blurbs endorsing his 1928 monograph, we find an excerpt from Benjamin's review. Although careful reference to the big Jewish names was still possible in 1934, it was already advisable to follow Meta's suit and supplement or subsume Freud, for example, with Nietzsche. However, Meta's reference to Benjamin, Siegfried Baunfeldt, and Hans Sachs may well have been judged gratuitous and insupportable. Meta consulted Baunfeldt and Sachs because their studies addressed, respectively, the psychology of youth movements and adolescent daydreaming, which Meta was exploring under the aegis of the Dionysian. In 1936, the Psychotherapy Institute was founded in Berlin to replace psychoanalysis, which meant, however, to emplace it, intact and unnamed, as working group A, within an ABC of psychodynamic perspectives that gave form to what was a concession to eclecticism. However, the Institute's all-important clinic was the responsibility of working group A, which shows that under different names and neologisms, the Nazi government was determined to stick to what worked, which included, in the view from on high, Freudian psychoanalysis. 
Although Mehta did not try for a prominent role within the Institute, he was under its protection. Unlike the leading depth psychologists at the Institute, Mehta didn't enter the Bermuda Triangle of reunification of greater psychoanalysis out of a synthesis of Adlerian, Jungian, and Freudian perspectives. After 1934, Mehta developed instead a literary style which paid off. In keeping with tendencies in the discourse of the humanities which were heightened under Nazi censorship, Mehta's discourse joined in the gobbledy-spook of Romanticism's unquiet grave. In the back of his 1940 book, his final essay or attempt to illuminate Nietzsche's duo-dialectic, select publications by the same press are listed, including Mehta's book on dreams from the year before. One blurb endorsing the 1939 study, excerpted from a review in one of the central journals of Nazi German psychiatry, broadcasts words from Mehta's sponsor, the head of Berlin Psychotherapy Institute, Matthias Göring. In keeping with the Institute's reunifying eclecticism, the Adlerian therapist sets aside his reservations. In the clinical setting, elucidation of a dream can proceed only in the context of the whole personality, just the same. Everyone who has depth psychological understanding will read with pleasure the Metian book, which is written artistically and graphically. The adaptation to censorship does not have to equal adaptation to new ideological norms. Censorship can also externalize obstacles faced by anyone apprenticed to the stern mastery of writing. The Versuchung, temptation, and experiment of writing can be compelling. Meta's thesis book doubles as manual on the intrapsychic course of obstacles faced in the experiment of being or wanting to be a writer. His first publication, in 1925, was a collection covering his early years as writer-novice from 1917 through 1922. In addition to his many poems, there is one exposition in which Meta addresses the significance of youth at the same time as he tests his own decision to be an author of critical prose. It's awkward, not only in terms of writing development. Meta opens with a reproach. The young generation swerved from the ideals of the victors in 1870 into the eddy of a concept the future generation never fully owned, with which, however, it came to be associated, the concept of the proletariat. A deeper sense of the impasse is given by the history that came to pass in which the younger generation faced the fall of the empire with indifference. Well before the unification of Germany, German youth demonstrated a will and path of its own. One need only consider the Wandervogel movement. Wasn't it a proletarian trait of the youth movements that in returning to nature, they openly turned away from property rights? However, it was an idea that compelled them, the idea of duty-free individuality delivered of all ownership, all material possession, indeed the very thought of it, including economic theory. This new will to life that eschews political organization may be the highest that a national culture can attain. The younger generation came to a Hamletian impasse 
not as adversaries of the German spirit, but as representatives of its development, indeed as the only historical Germany that was available in the new century. So ends the first section. Other sections in this pre-psychoanalytic exposition on extramoral heroism, on the role of women in the metabolization of youth, on the youth objective or aesthetic justification of what feels real, are placeholders for what followed in the course of metapsychoanalytic revalorization of Nietzsche's Dionysian and Apollonian principles. Between suicidal ideation, Hamlet or Werther, and a hankering for unidentified heroism, Siegfried, the German youth movements followed the invention of adolescence into modern group psychology. Was Meta entering upon so-called inner emigration when after 1940 he didn't publish again in Nazi Germany? Meta did continue to practice psychotherapy. Right after the war in Weimar, he still trained psychotherapy candidates. In a span between parentheses, Regina Lockott gives the rundown of Meta's GDR career after he gave up his practice. He pursued an initial interest in health policies, then a university career, and eventually became a member of the Chamber of Deputies of the German Democratic Republic and a member of the Central Committee of the Socialist Unity Party. Meta's publications during this period were in a style closer to the cosmopolitan jargonic style before the Nazi censorship, but adapted to a different superstructure. He adamantly turned his association away from Freud's science and put it there with Pavlov in studies that promoted a politically corrective historiography of the discipline of psychiatry. Is it possible to discern in Meta's oeuvre and career an afterlife of Benjamin's allegorical affiliations, or at least of their reception, which already took combative form in the couple's therapy sessions with Theodore Adorno? Benjamin's investment in Marxist discourse, which he employed not only by Adorno's account metaphorically or perhaps allegorically, was also all about its abandoned status as seen from the fast lane of the competition on death drive. Benjamin was drawn to lost places deep inside the recent past, the past that always also represents prehistory. He knew about the evil eye staying powers of condemned discourses. When the Frankfurt School first put out its shingle, there was really only one main competitor on death drive, the eclectic psychotherapeutic brand and band that had grown up between the wars and the afterglow of Freud's big success story, his science's mythic healing of war neurosis. The military psychological or psychotechnical competition was way advanced along the double lines of psychoanalysis and technology that Benjamin explored in the essays on mechanical reproducibility and on Baudelaire. There was no Marxism in the competition's mix and not because it was the one ism that would have blown it all away. The competition only used what worked toward the accomplishment of a certain set of goals, and that meant Freud and an inside-out understanding of technologization and mass psychology. The fascist grasp of the intersection between technology and the unconscious was too far along to be outdistanced on its own terms and turf at least in the shorter run of survival. But the mix Benjamin attempted in the essay on film culture, 
which culminated in the slogan designed for reproducibility, the one about aestheticization of politics and politicization of art, even one in the longer run. This is how Benjamin sought to intervene in the reversal of psychoanalysis internal to the Nazi techno-bond by addressing the same gadget lovers, the distracted teen testers, the teen experts in their own replication or reassembly, who were already plugged into the Nazi takeover of live or life's transmissions on death drive. Meta's 1939 comeback was a book on dreams, not those of his patients, but the dreams of the authors of non-clinical dream books published from 1917 to 1935. Like a folklorist, he proceeds by comparing dreams from the various compilations, and between the lines gives a record of unconscious developments, even changes, which were going down in record real time. In one comparison between dreams, Meta reverses the chronological order, attaching the earlier dream like a gloss or legend to the first dream presentation. Indeed, in the wake and shake-up of the Lost War, the 1926 dream is far more demarcated and detailed. In the face of a future that is more fate than fantasy, the 1935 dream is terse, sullen, compacted. In 1935, the dreamer enters the winter forest as hunter, yiga, which she doesn't invest with the female gender. While searching for her missing companions, she finds the severed head of a girl under a thorny bush. She picks up the tender head and carries it with her as she continues her search, which is now also the search for the girl's body. She meets up with four of her companions, and together they keep looking for those still missing. The dream ends in a walled town, the scene of an absence. In 1926, we start out with the dreamer and her companion in a place that is uncanny, mainly because it is a border area. She looks up the cliff and recognizes three figures, two hunters and an unusually beautiful woman, although the dreamer hastens to add that her beauty is alienating. Maybe she's from the south or the east. One of the hunters in the woman's company shoots a deer. The woman radiates a vital joy. Then the dreamer's companion aims his gun. The woman falls from the cliff onto their side of the border. That's why they can secure her remains in a sanctuary where she lies piled high with other corpses. The dreamer carries the woman's head in a sack, anxiously taking care of it, while conscious of the necessity of ridding herself of it. On a city street, she recognizes in the tram the hunters and the woman standing next to them. Upon closer inspection, the dreamer sees that it is a wax mannequin in the dead woman's image. I stare at the uncanny group, anxiously expecting, like a guilty criminal, that at any moment the mask will fall and out of the waxen lifelessness will emerge the old life that binds her to her companions. Meta reaches back in time for a preliminary interpretation. Originally, man struggled as hunter against nature. The conflict with one's foreign neighbor is the continuation, in modern times, of the prehistorical struggle. Killing our fellow man is horrifying, only under special conditions, when acting in one's own defense or in war, can the horror be bracketed out. 
The dreamer evinces a cool attitude that gives way as the dream progresses to a mounting fear of retaliation. The murdered woman is expected to return as a ghost. Her first station stop is the uncanny group with the wax doll. The mannequin's face displays the same expression of triumphant joy as did the woman's visage when she was shot. It crosses the dreamer's mind. That's why she was shot. The dream is set in a border area during the winter, a fitting setting for the theme of annihilation and return. Meta therefore strikes up the fairy tale elaboration of separation from childhood, which is abandoned as dead, and of the rebirth that follows into the grown-up world. But what's missing is adolescence, which, Meta says, doesn't heed or need fairy tales. In a fairy tale episode that comes very close to a dream scene, Meta identifies a cushioning and mitigating tendency at work, which reserves the fairy tale for the carefree child. The fairy tale doesn't tear apart the setting of childhood, only deepens it. In adolescence, we graduate from fairy tale and approach myth and legend. Beginning in adolescence, processes of maturation and mating stand by rule of life under the sway of psychic forces. The dream, Meta concludes, is adolescent. It is heir to elemental forces of nature which are in transition before striking a balance in myth and legend. By skewering together a dream from the 1917 book and another dream from the 1926 collection, Meta elaborates the prehistory that coincides with the recent past. In 1917, the dreamer travels first by train, then on a boat. Pupils returning from a field trip sing in the background. The ship docks at a public beach where strange images made out of wax depict boys of various ages each one captioned, Portrait of a Drowned Boy. It crosses his mind that some of them might not have drowned on their own, but rather were drowned. In the group of unmoving figures, there is one wax figure that's mechanically wound up to move its torso back and forth. The dreamer recognizes his friend who shot himself at age 18. The suicide tries to drag the dreamer down to the bottom of the sea, they are so closely entwined by the end that the dreamer can feel on his face the suicide's decaying grimace. In the 1926 Dream Comp, the dreamer is on a walking tour out in the country with a large group. Jump cut. She's alone in Berlin. Everything seems alien and she can hardly recognize a thing. Just the same, she is filled with unbounded joy that she is really in Berlin. She visits relatives who have moved to the city. Together they go for a walk and stop at the fairground, which turns into a cemetery. She goes past a row of unattended graves, overgrown with grass, now brown in the winter. These are children's graves, graves of teenagers. And the thought seizes me with shocking vehemence that these were youths who lived in Berlin. How did it become so difficult for them that they had to die? Meta comments, These dead and undead embody the dreamer's past on the cusp of transition. The figures themselves are stuck at the threshold. 
the horrifying existence of the half-dead, half-living resonates with the atmosphere of initiation rites that submitted teen boys to torture, humiliation, bondage, dismemberment, and haunting. Touring, like the hunting and the other dreams, signifies crowd experience. Anxiety inspires one to band together with others. In the 1926 hunting dream, the murdered foreign woman is the feared animal and the masculine principle of gender. In the dream from 1935, the dreamer is a huntress who names herself a male hunter. A woman becomes an Amazon out of fear of the male. The severed heads and the foreign beauty are phallic symbols, I mean, symbols of the masculine gender principle. Depth psychologically schooled dream researchers, Meta assures the reader, can readily interpret the application of these symbols as signifying castration. Castration appears in dreams to disavow sexual difference. For all the corpses strewn across these dreams, the main theme, according to Meta, is the removal of the identifying marks of masculinity. Women compiled two of the three dream collections, that different dreams by different dreamers of different genders reveal typical patterns is no more surprising, Meta underscores, than the sameness or androgyny of healthy young bodies in the service of the law of life. Meta offers another reversed coupling of dreams from the 1935 and 1926 collections. The 1935 dream opens with a we in a mountain village. Our boys are away mountain climbing. But when the group of youths returns at noon, the dreamer notices that something is wrong. Her son is no longer with them. All the villagers, thousands of them, join her in searching for him. When she comes upon a slab of stone, it rolls back and her son emerges. She examines him for any injuries, but he pushes her away. It's not me anymore, he tells her. The new one is coming on a raft. The former son offers to save the new one for her. They hurry to the shore. There's the raft on which her son lies sleeping. The 1926 dream commences in a pleasant landscape that the dreamer, however, finds uncanny, even if it is bright, colorful, and clean. A loud cry announces a boat's arrival, but it's plummeting down a waterfall, and it's not a boat, it's an embracing couple, a couple of youths. The rescued teens, who it turns out are uh, Wandervögel, are brought inside the hospital while the nurses carry out another dead teen for burial at sea. We know that they are barely alive and will die in but a few hours. Meta. It is once again the destiny of the transitional zone. Dreams of mothers rescuing children in a manner and setting suggestive of birth and rebirth loop the readiness to give birth to new life through the turbulence of adolescence, which consciously is hard to grasp and maintain. It is up to the dreams to represent it. The initiation of girls, also in fairy tales, is more closely aligned with sexual awakening. Threatening masculinity, including that of phallic mothers, must be thwarted so the girl can enter the deep sleep of latency and await Prince Charming. That's why the dreamers seem to dread that renewed contact with heterosexuality 
would return them to the liminal state of initiation. The erotic commotion has reawakened inside them in its entirety, the crisis zone of transition with all its latent tensions. The dreams also address substitution. The 1926 dream does not succeed fully in bringing back to life the casualties, and in lieu of a substitute, there is the dead youth. The psyche, however, remembers that in puberty the old ego dies and a new one rises up anew. The wish to rescue the youth with whom the dreamer identifies recalls the earlier process. Meta is inspired to present another dream from 1935 that also treats the theme of birth and rebirth. The dreamer's five-year-old son has died, vanished from the surface of the earth. She enters the underworld of the dwarves and encounters a woman holding an infant with her lost son standing by. The strange woman says she must choose between the infant bearing the soul of her son and her bodily son now in possession of a stranger's soul. Infantile and pre-birth existence are ambivalently processed by the psyche, says Meta, such that, depending on the mood swing of your valuation, birth is death or death-birth. The spiritually established individual who is fully engaged in the activity of the social processes, however, has an easy choice. The stronger his consciousness has developed into a dominating agency, the more effortlessly he decides for the grown-up individual. The choice of the son with the strange soul gives in Nietzsche Klaus Tevelite's genealogy in male fantasies of the heightened state of paramilitary preparation between the world wars that supported the emergence of a Nazi state. The father takes the boy child away from his mother and enrolls him in transit centers of hard body training. When the youth again stands before his mother, he is a stranger with both feet on the burial ground of young adult heroism. It is not so much that childhood gets trained out of the young subject once and for all, but rather that childhood is fortified as fairy tale park and memorial point of departure, the birth of the hero. Adolescence is elided between a riveting childhood and man of steel manhood. The 1940 study that closed the books on Meta's exploration of the Dionysian and Apollonian principles opens upon the uncanny world of the clown. The unending why of the child builds up his conceptual environment in trusting application of the Satz vom Grund, the principle of reason. The clown asks why, but he also answers himself with authority, the parental response. Why not? Because. Clown comedy is a hybrid of childlikeness and maturity, incompleteness and accomplishment. Recent depth psychological comparative studies of dream and fairy tale motifs, here Meta also refers to his own study from the year before, have found points in common with the initiation rites in puberty that are still performed in primitive societies. The carnival custom of stripping, drowning, destroying a doll, or throwing a participant into the water is reminiscent of practices in the initiation ceremonies. The childlike life form 
must be destroyed in a tortuous staging of sacrifice and then brought back, animated anew as the initiated novice. In comparing the celebration of Carnival and the performance of the clown, however, Metta compacts the psychic tension of initiation into the unconscious content of a transitional phase from childlike being to the stage of maturity. Fairy tales with their dark unconscious images of death and return prepare the child for life's transit zones. But while traits of the prehistorical rites can still be discerned in the customs of carnival, the clown's performance steps back squarely inside early childhood. Just as Meta could find the Dionysian influence in the carnival festivals of his day, so he discerns contemporary traces of the Apollonian in the overvaluation of sports and, more directly, in the strict hierarchy of our manliest institutions, the authoritarian organization of the state and the military. The psychology behind the discipline is nothing other than the longing for the Apollonian prototype, for emulation of the model without consideration of risk to health or life. Destructiveness is not the prerogative of Dionysus alone. Apollo has cruel traits too. Consider his uncompromising disdain for what is unformed, flaccid, for whatever is stuck in becoming immutability. Already in boyhood, a dragon slayer, it lies in Apollo's nature to put an end to shapeless becoming and erect in its stead an eternal realm of unchanging beauty and completion. Meta offers a seasonal analog, the Apollonian preference for the flowing rivers, transformation into ice. Apollo turns unruly Dionysus into the imperative, die nice as ice. After he links Apollonian art via and beyond the image to the nobility of the healthy race that represents mankind or which mankind represents, Meta brings up the arrears in this nihilistic optimism. It's a fact of life that the man of culture is more readily able to see the figure of a dead person in light of ideal completion and beauty than the figures or data of those still living. Only the dead are immune to the decline into raw, unbound, blind instinct lust. Although the clown's antics might be construed as a tantrum tearing apart the bond between mother and child, and therefore as emblematic of transition, Meta stands by his opening interpretation of cloud humor in terms of the Zatz vom Grund, which more aptly registers the clown's distance from the carnival fool. By breaking and then restoring trust and causality, the clown becomes a well-wrought device for safely experiencing regression to early childhood. In Meta's construction, the clown absorbs adolescence, specifically the creativity and language practiced by teen in-groups. Meta allows that he can say that the clown's performance goes back to and stays with the child's way of finding words and thoughts only if he brackets out another childlike tendency, namely to babble back what was heard and remembered. This babbling brook must freeze over to allow for the two-step march from early childhood to young adulthood. On the map of the joking that yokes together every variety of mass formation, 
the humor marking the spot we are in with the clown is the exception. It is not guaranteed the stamp of group approval because not fundamentally group bound. It incorporates an infantile trust in adult superiority, which resonates intrapsychically. You don't take your audience home with you in humor. You are alone with humor, but outsiders can appreciate your situation from a safe distance. In California, the heimat of the teen age since the 1930s, likability betokens a friendliness that never shakes the glue of the like. The smile for miles or for a laugh lights up the group aspect. Pronounced friendliness, the kind etched into the smiley, ultimately bears up as efficiency in the face of catastrophe. Californian friendliness, which permeates everyday life, is a mode of preparedness, like earthquake preparedness, the mode Freud associated with anxiety, but which Californian group psychology carries forward in the manner of teen likability. The German version, excavated by Meta, is less preparedness and more readiness at the drop scene of crisis to join in a humorous camaraderie, which promotes efficiency by acceptance of the fateful setback and the consequent determination to get through it. The bottom line of humor, Freud argued, is gallows humor, in which the superego has the last laugh. Humor redirects unstoppable teen irreverence, like the nickname Bluebo, given the official blood and earth, blut und Boden discourse of National Socialism. Teens on the psychopath are, Winnicott writes in the concept of a healthy individual, candidates for lives of storm and stress, or perhaps illness. The possibility of illness registers on a sliding scale between schizoid and schizophrenic, the other constitutive tendency of adolescence, withdrawal of complicity in order to defend a true self against imposition of a false one, to use a distinction Winnicott fittingly refers to here as awkward. To follow a final victory against all the evidence in the ego's environment reflects not only psychopathic idealism, but also the schizoid variant, which on the laugh track is willing and able to take a joke from the superego. Were the German egos chuckling at the blue bow joke on them as they went along to get through it? In his 1939 study of dreams, Meta placed the cinematic 1926 dream about the foreign beauty and her wax effigy after the one from 1935, as though it clarified or expanded the more terse presentation allegedly spun around the same complex. Let's heed the 1935 dream narrative as it stands in light of Meta's concluding treatment of the Dionysian and the Apollonian. Looking in the winter woods for her companions who are missing, the dreamer finds the severed head of a young child. She catches up with four of her fellow hunters who join her in searching for the others. The dreamer and her lost and found comrades comprise an open crowd, always falling short of closing a circle. The mass formation denies and subsumes its provenance in adolescence propelled by the search for the other adults and for the body of the child, 
it resolutely enters the city of death.